you. Let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 42 this morning. Good to be sharing God's word again. And we'll continue our look at the life of Joseph and we'll see this particular uh, passage that we're looking at today. Uh, His brothers head down to Egypt to buy some food and guess who they meet? Genesis chapter 42 verse 1. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither, and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob, uh, sent not with his brethren. For he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for this precious word, and we just thank you that it is perfect. We can look to it, we can learn from it, we can grow through it, and we just pray that your spirit will be teaching us now your ways and help us to understand. Lord, even more importantly, we pray that we would understand but also live So we pray for the grace to be able to take these words that you give us, to take these teachings that you have for us and to live them that we might glorify you. Bless us now with your your spirit working among us and within us. And we ask that you be glorified once again in Jesus name. Amen. Um, Aussies have certain colloquialisms that don't exist overseas. One of the things I learned when we had some friends over from, I think it was America, I'm not sure who, who it was exactly, but I remember having a conversation around the, the name McDonald's. Okay, So the restaurant McDonald's, we've managed to mangle that. And we don't call it McDonald's, we call it... Maccas. Look at them, you're all good Aussies, aren't you? <laughs> Maccas, they all said it in unison as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is going better than I thought, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we have a number of colloquialisms. So we've taken... They don't call it Maccas over there. We've, we've even tried to mangle it even more, calling it Mickey D's and things like that. So we like to shorten names over here and we create our own sort of... We've got a, Well, they're called uh, colloquialisms, okay? Um, but only really an Aussie can appreciate the colloquialism of their own... Of their own people, you know what I mean. And each country has their own colloquialisms. There, there are certain things that are said in a certain way, and you sort of well, they're ours. You know what I mean? There, there's sort of there's things that you keep, and there are things that make you um, make you special. So, for example, when we were in, when we were in America, um, they would take us for a cookout. All right, so cook outside. Fair enough. It's a and we got to call it a what a barbie. Yeah. So, so we have our own our own names to certain things, which makes us different. And did you know the Bible has colloquialisms in it? It has particular uh, phrases and things that, that are only are particular to it. And, that's, and one of the things I love about the King James Bible is that instead of trying to decipher what the actual colloquialism means, they, they gave it for us literally. So beautiful thing about um, that is that the English language now has adopted many of the colloquialisms that were in the King James Bible, and we don't even know it. You know what I mean? So it just become part of our language. For instance, if you escape by the skin of your teeth, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? 
Well, that's in the Bible. Okay, that's found in Job. You know, if you have a broken heart, tell me who doesn't, hasn't used or heard that phrase. A broken heart comes from the Psalms. It's the, that's the place where it actually was written. If you've got a drop in the bucket, that's from Isaiah, which is speaking about the power and the, uh, and the uh, omnipotence of God. If you go the extra mile, Jesus speaking about go that extra mile with those who demand it or compel you to do something. If, if you're going to put words in someone else's mouth, that's in the Bible too. Okay, That's in 2 Samuel. And if you see eye to eye, that's in the Bible too. There are plenty of those types of phrases which we automatically know what they mean. So I mean, where does this phrase, I, I see eye to eye with someone? Do you know what I mean? What does that mean? It has a, a, an understanding in and of itself as a special phrase. And one of the beautiful things is that our culture has adopted many of those phrases, which shows you the influence of the Bible on our culture, okay? which is a good thing. So there are certain phrases and things and, 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 uh, and, and situations, though, that are also like colloquialisms. And I was brought up... Um, on Laurel and Hardy and, and slapstick humour, okay, watching TV as I was growing up, and the Three Stooges were were part of a, a regular diet, okay. Um, and Mo was always a leader, wasn't he? Mo was the one who would say, you know, uh, he'd tell them off, the other two, and he'd slap both of them at the same time and then do that way. Okay, so um, that's that phrase... Or the things that he said to him was, don't just stand there looking at each other. Go and do something. You know what I mean? Is a phrase and almost a colloquialism that we've actually taken for granted. Don't just stand there. And don't just stand there looking stupid. Look, look at each other. Go and do something. Is exactly what Jacob told his brothers. Sorry, it's what Jacob told his sons. Okay? So if you look at it, because if you look at verse 1, it says, Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look one upon another? Why are you looking at each other for? Behold, I've heard that there is corn in Egypt. Go <laughs> before we die and get some food before we die. That's exactly the phrase we're looking at here. That's exactly the situation. They're looking at each other like dumb. Like, well, what do we do? The 10 brothers, right? What do we do? And the dad pipes up and says, what are you looking at each other for? I've heard this corn. Hurry up and go down and buy it. So this is the situation. This is how this whole chapter starts with this almost like a, a comedic situation where his brother's got no idea what they're doing. And he goes, hurry up and go down. And by the way, you're not taking Benjamin with you because something's going to happen to him and I'm not going to stand for it. So you'll notice also in this particular passage that it doesn't call where they're living Israel, does it? Because Israel came much later. It's still called the land of Canaan um, because it only became Egypt after the Israelites moved to Egypt. And then they stayed there for about 400 years. And then they got rescued from Egypt when they were under bondage and then went around the desert for 40 years. And then after they came into Israel, did they, it was called the land of Israel when they'd fully conquered it. So... This is where we find ourselves at the moment. Seven years of plenty. Do you remember the previous time we spoke? Okay, so um, Joseph had described the dream or interpreted the dream that, that God had given to Pharaoh. And he said, Pharaoh, there are going to come seven really good years 
And my advice to you is that we store up 20% of everything we can get our hands on from a tax point of view, and we'll store it up in the cities because seven bad years are coming after that. And where we're at is that the seven good years have come and gone, and the seven bad years have now begun. And so it's reached Canaan. It's also reached not just Egypt, but it's actually now gone to Canaan as well. But the interesting thing is here that he sends 10 sons all at once to go down. And why would you send 10 sons? Well, they had to each have their donkeys or whatever it is to carry the grain. So they needed a few of them to go down. But he doesn't send Benjamin. And you might wonder, why didn't he send Benjamin for... Well, there are two main reasons for this. The first is that he was the youngest, okay, of all the brothers. And he was, he was one of only two sons of Rachel. And the first one being Joseph. And so in his mind, he had already lost one of Rachel's sons, his, his beloved, okay, he was his favorite. And now he's only got Benjamin left. And Rachel's gone, by the way, she died in childbirth. So we'll look at that, we'll look at that uh, passage now. Gen turn with me to Genesis 35. Benjamin was the only thing now connecting him and reminding him of the love. His first love, let's say, because he was the one that, that she was the one that he first fell in love with. And so Genesis 35:16 says, and they journeyed from Bethel. Now we, we're going back here. And we're look, talking about and looking at the birth of Benjamin. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had her hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is in Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. So Rachel's two sons were Joseph and Benjamin. She died having Benjamin, or as she called him, Benoni. Um, and, she, and she was buried um, at this particular place called Bethlehem Ephrath. Now you might remember that, or you might recognize that name, because that's the name where Jesus was born. That's the place where Jesus was born, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Okay? So it's an interesting thing in and of itself. Let's continue, though, with our brothers who are traveling down to Egypt. It says in verse 6 of Genesis 42. They've come down, they've had a long journey, they've arrived at Egypt. It doesn't particularly tell us where, it could be Cairo, it could be Memphis. But it says there in verse 6, And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people in the land. And Joseph's uh, brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. We'll just stop there just for a moment. Lo and behold, okay, after all these years, and we're talking 20 years which have passed, 
They, don't, they haven't heard from Joseph. They don't know anything about him. They don't know whether he's alive or dead. As far as they knew, he was sold into slavery and possibly had died as part of the actual uh, uh, that thing. But they meet Joseph. And when they approach Joseph, they realize they're approaching someone of a very high rank. You see, Joseph had been made the ruler of Egypt. And as such, he would have been dressed for that position. Okay? As, you, as we heard before, he had a golden ring put on his, uh, on his finger. He was dressed in probably the finest uh, clothes that you would find. Uh, he probably had some sort of a hat on that would distinguish him from other people as well. And he probably looked much like an Egyptian. Okay, so they realized they were approaching someone of a very high rank. And as, as you would, you're going to prostrate yourself to the ground as a sign of respect to someone of such a high, high um, reputation. As I've said, it's about 20 years have passed. Joseph is now 37 years old. He was 17 when they last saw him. And 20 years have passed. He's going to look a bit different, isn't he? After that amount of time. Um, and he was probably dressed like I've said, probably as an Egyptian, but his 10 brothers failed to recognize him. 10. You'd think one might say, doesn't that guy look like Joseph? But we don't see any of that. It's like the 10 brothers have failed to, to recognize him at all. I'm sure if he dressed me up like an Egyptian and gave me a shave and waited a few years, you'd probably still recognize me, one way or the other. As soon as I started to speak, normally your voice gives it away, doesn't it? Okay. But... It illustrates something for us. They were blind to their own brother. You see, and the question, the question I have about that is how well did they know their brother when he was living with them in Canaan? Because if, you, if we read those few accounts that we have of their interaction, they're often, by, they're often together, right? Those 10 brothers are together and they're, and they're doing stuff and they're rounding up the sheep and all that sort of stuff. And then Joseph is somewhere else. And it's often his father who sends Joseph to them. So it doesn't seem as if they had a very good knowledge of their own brother. Often they were jealous of him because he was his dad's favorite. Okay. And they often derided him and made fun of him. But if you remember, it says that one time when he was approaching them, he said, oh, he comes the dreamer after he had made or after he's had those dreams. So how well did they know their brother? I suspect they didn't know him very well at all. And that's the challenge here. So as we've seen in previous sermons, Joseph becomes a picture of Jesus Christ. Joseph was the ruler of all Egypt. He had the power to provide now to people the food they needed to live. Otherwise, they would have died. His own brothers now recognized his authority and bowed themselves to the ground in respect to him. And so once again, this is like a picture of Jesus where Jesus is the son of God. He is the rightful ruler of this entire world. This world which is in rebellion and in darkness and in a famine of truth. And he is the one who all the world is called to bow the knee to, to prostrate themselves down to. He is the bread of heaven. He said, I am the bread which comes from heaven, which will give you life. The 10 brothers couldn't recognize their own brother. Had he changed so much that they were too blind to see him or recognize his voice? 
In him they saw a stranger, someone they couldn't really trust. Joseph knew them though. He knew them, he recognised them. And this almost becomes a picture of Christ in this world too. You see, Jesus knows every person intimately. He knows every person. The Bible tells us that when he was walking all around with his disciples, he knew the hearts of men. He knew before they spoke what they would say, and he already knew in multiple times in the New Testament, you have situations where it says that Jesus knew what was in their minds, what they were thinking, or what they were whispering to each other. Jesus knows the world intimately. He recognises every person perfectly with all their faults and all their sins and all their past and all their struggles and baggage. But people find it hard to recognise him. It's a challenge. And this is the picture that we have in Joseph. He knew his brothers well. Even though 20 years had passed, he recognised their speech. He knew who was who in that zoo. And he probably recognised their mannerisms and the way they even interacted with each other. The brothers had come to Jesus, sorry, to Joseph asking for grain. But they didn't recognise him. And it's a bit like the world today. People come to Jesus asking for stuff, don't they? Um, and what I found is that praying to Jesus doesn't, doesn't, doesn't determine or guarantee that you actually know him. Just because someone prays to Jesus doesn't mean they actually recognise him or they know who he actually is. There are millions of people in this world, maybe even billions or more, who might pray to Jesus without ever having come to know him whatsoever. They think they know him and they think they might know him because they know certain facts about him. They might know where he lived and, and how he lived and, and what he did and all those types of things. But does that mean you know a person? No, it doesn't. I can know many facts about many people in history, but it doesn't mean that I actually know them or that they know me. They may have read about him in the Bible and know all the stories about him. They may have even been moved and, and, and continue to be moved by the acts of love and by his grace and by his teachings that they see. They might be moved to tears. But does it mean they know him? It doesn't mean they know him. You know, I can read about the life of King David and be inspired and moved by what he went through. It doesn't mean that I know David personally. I don't know about David. I might be even moved by David's life, but it doesn't mean I know him personally or that he knows me. People often come to Jesus asking for something that they need, whether it's food or a miracle if something goes wrong. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually recognise him because in front of him is often this cloak of religiosity. He is clothed differently. He looks different. And people have painted him in a different way, regardless, in all different places in the world. Now, Joseph was dressed like an Egyptian. They wouldn't have recognised Joseph too easily because he was clean-shaven, he was older, he was dressed with Egyptian clothes, he was speaking the Egyptian language. Later on we find that he's talking through an interpreter. But under the clothes, they didn't recognise the man. You see, he was shielded from them. 
They didn't see the person under that. And that's what religion does. Religion puts a cloak over the real Jesus. Religion covers him up, makes him look different to who he actually is. You know, when I consider the religion that I came out of, my heart breaks. Because people in that, in that religion recite the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis. The Apostles' Creed, which, which, which covers pretty much all the stuff that we agree with. These people believe in the Trinity. They believe in heaven. They believe in hell. They believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe he, died, he rose again on the third day. But I can tell you for a fact they don't know Jesus. They know a whole lot about him, but there's a whole lot of stuff they don't know. The most important thing is they don't know him. And the reason I can say that with confidence is that their lives deny him. Their speech completely denies him. They have a complete lack of interest in getting to know him more or know him better. They have no understanding of the gospel, of how he might have saved them, because it's unlikely that they're saved, and what he did for them. I, am, I have family who are in that, who do a whole lot of stuff within it and spend an enormous amount of time and energy in that thing trying to appease God, trying to keep him happy so that they may enter heaven one day. But this is the same family who would not give the Lord, their saviour, the one who we were called to bow the knee to, a second thought during the week. But when tragedy hits the family, guess who they go to? They go to him. They plead for a miracle. They plead for a loved one. They ask for something that they know they can't get themselves. But in that instance, the question is, do they actually know him? And the answer is still no, because they're praying to a different Jesus. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus are two very different things. You see, people in this world struggle to recognize the real Jesus and what his relationship is to them. They might see him as a wonderful teacher, uh, a God. They might see him as a great prophet, but they often fail to see his true identity. I'm not talking about whether he is the son, whether they recognize him as the son of God. But the problem that we have in the world is that people have made idols of Jesus. Uh, one of the commandments is, Thou shalt not make an idol to thyself. Thou shalt not worship any other God, okay, apart from the one. But making an idol is, a, is a, an interesting picture in and of itself and a command when you think about it. It's fashioning, it's fashioning a, a, an image of God which is not him, but meant to represent him. You see, the Israelites fell into that same trap when Moses was up on that mountain for 40 days and they said to themselves, what are we going to do? He's probably dead up there. And so they, they conspired together and even Aaron uh, gathered the gold and they made themselves a golden calf. And they said, this is your God who saved you out of Egypt. Now, what would they say that for? Because people love making idols. People have to make an idol in their heart or in their mind or physically because they want to make something that they can follow, that they can have control over. And people make idols of Jesus all the time. 
They make Jesus the way they want Jesus to be. Someone that suits them. Someone who's not, you know, threatening in any way. Someone who doesn't demand obedience. Someone who doesn't demand uh, to believe the truth. Someone who doesn't say, I am the only way to the Father. But they'll receive him in every other way except the one that the scriptures teach. You can know Jesus in the flesh or you can know him by the spirit. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.16 just to make this clearer for you. There are two ways you can know Jesus Christ. You've either made an idol of him or you've received the real him. You can know him by the flesh or you can know him through the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's what happens to someone who is born again. We don't see other people the same way before. This is the difference between a saved and an unsaved person. Our relationship to other people is now different. We don't see them the same way because the identity we put on other people is determined by either our flesh or our new nature. And when I, before I was saved, I looked at Christ in a particular way. And it was the idol that my flesh had made of him. I can come to him when I need him. I don't, when I don't need him, I put him to the side. He is someone who my flesh said, let's make a picture of him like this and keep him over here. Not too close, lest we sort of, you know, get ourselves in trouble over here. There are two ways you can know Christ and you can know everyone else. And that is either through your flesh, which leads to sin. Or you can know them through the spirit of God who then directs your spirit to reveal the truth. There are many false Christs that exist in the world because there are many idols that have been made of Christ within people's hearts and in their minds. In fact, there are probably a myriad of Christs out there who probably can't even count because each person has a particular image of him depending on how what suits them. Much of the world shows respect for Christ. Don't get me wrong. If you go to a Muslim today, when they, when they even speak his name, if you, do you know what they say after? Peace be upon him. Yeah. So when they, when they speak the name of Muhammad, they have such reverence for the name of Muhammad, they'll, they'll, they'll say immediately, peace be upon him. And the same thing goes for Christ. He said, I have a great respect for him. As, as one of the greatest prophets of all of history. Oh, he's just under Muhammad though. But they're not the only ones. The Hindus also include Christ in their lineup of gods. The Buddhists probably see him as an enlightened one. And much of Christendom 
that we see in the world today that has removed the gospel of salvation from their churches and removed really the, the Bible as the foundation for what they believed. Uh, and they've replaced those things with the traditions of men and the philosophies of the world, still declaring to be the son of God. They still declare that he you know, died for the sins of the world and he rose again on the third day and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, but he's not the same. He's a very different person. They even pray to him and don't recognise him. They fail to see him as their own, as the brother should have realised he's one of us. But they don't. They see him as a foreigner, someone of great power who they can bargain and trade with. Eh? So what were, the, what were the brothers there speaking to Joseph for? They wanted to pay money to get that bread, right? To get that grain so they could live, so they could have life. Look at that picture. Isn't that a perfect picture of religion? That I pay something which I think is valuable to God so he can give me the bread of life. And that's what religion is about. You see, we just we celebrated the Lord's table this morning. And for us, it's a, it's a memorial. It's a remembrance of what he's done for us to remind us about who we are. But there are some who see that, that, that memorial and that when they take the bread, they're actually eating him. And when they do that, they're actually gaining merit and earning some brownie points with God. So what's going on in religion is this continual trading business going on. Okay, I'll give you something and then God, you have to give me something. I'll give you something and then you have to give me something. And then if that balance is pretty good, if that balance is right, if business has been done properly, by the end of it, the scales are going to balance and everything's going to be good. That's not what Christianity is and that's not who Jesus is. We have... Let me ask you, what do we have to trade with God? Can you think of it? What do we trade with God that we have of value? We have nothing. We have nothing to trade. That's the whole purpose and the whole message of Christianity. There is nothing we can trade with God. There is nothing that says, God, I've got this amazing thing of value for you. And if you take this, you, des you, you need to give me something in return. There is zero that we have to give God. Nothing. When we, came, when we came to God and even after, it's God who does it. It's God who initiates the salvation. Who's, it's totally in God's hands. The Bible says that any good works that I have to offer God are filthy rags. When was the last time you traded filthy rags of anyone? How much are 20 filthy rags going to get you? Are they going to get you a cup of coffee? No. I'll get thrown back in your face. And this is the thing about, about Jesus. People look at him like a trader, as a foreigner, someone to do business with, to, get, to earn stuff from. They don't recognise him. They don't see him for who he really is. So what, this is what um, moved me about the story of Mary. When you, you see the resurrection day on Sunday and Mary arrives at the tomb and he's gone. The tomb's empty. And she sees two angels in there. And I think it's still dark. So she must have gone in with a torch. Imagine seeing a bit of a sh having a bit of a shock seeing two guys, one standing at the end of each of his thing. And he goes, where is he? And they go, he's not here. He's gone. Well, that doesn't help me very much, does it? Turn with me to, to John chapter 20, just for a moment. Because one of the things that's so blessed about this story, first of all, it's a woman that arrives at the tomb. And so the whole patriarchy thing goes down the drain. Right? She's the first one to, to see him. But the second thing is the familiarity that she has with him. She knows him. 
John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. So she, it was still dark. It was, she didn't quite picture him. She couldn't quite get the, the image. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, if you've taken him away, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. I'll take care of him if you've, if you've brought him somewhere else. And I love this. My favorite, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jesus saith unto her, one word, Mary. And she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, or Rabboni, which is to say master. She recognized it with one word. He just said her name, Mary. And she knew him. Now Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And this is the sad thing about our culture and about many churches who call themselves Christian is that they don't know him. They don't. And they won't know him until they recognize his voice calling them and they respond. You know, when Jesus was rebuking some of the churches in the book of Revelation, the last church is Laodicea. And one thing about the Laodicean church, which is startling, is that he's not in it anymore. The church had, had degraded itself so much that he wasn't actually there. And so we have this picture of him in Revelation 3.20 that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's outside. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. He was outside the church and he was knocking on the church door of those people that were there saying, if anyone wants to receive me, I'll come. And it's the same invitation that he gives to all. He never forces his way into a person's life, but that's the only way you're ever going to know him is to allow him to come in, to open the door and to allow him into your life. The real question for us this morning is do we know Christ. Failure to recognize him means an eternity without him. Today is a day of salvation because today the Bible says if you hear his voice, respond. With eternity secured through him, you can now spend your years getting to know him even better. And that really should be our goal, shouldn't it? If you have Christ, you have everything. And he should be the one we want to get to know more than anything else in this world. So I'm praying that that's, that message comes from the, the blindness of these 10 brothers to see, recognize their own brother should be for us. But let's continue with verse 9. Genesis chapter 42. Joseph remembers the dreams that he had. 
and it says there, And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, his own brothers. And he said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. So the dream that Joseph had about his brothers was, he was uh, there were sheaves of wheat. So when you cut the wheat, they pile it up into things, they tie it around it, and, and, they, and they leave them there to be collected later as they, as they, they, go to, as they continue with their, um, with their work. And he said in his dream, and what he saw in his dream was that his sheaves stood up. And their sheaves all bowed down to his, which got him pretty upset. But look at what was happening now. The ten brothers were bowing down to him with their face to the earth. And he's remembering what dreams he had. He even dreamed, the second one, he dreamed that the 11, 11 stars, his other brothers, all his brothers, and then the sun and the moon bowed down to him as well, which was his mum and dad. Got his dad pretty upset as well. But he also didn't forget they ridiculed him because of his dreams. How they despised him. How they had actually conspired to kill him. How they threw him into a pit and they didn't hear his screams or respond to him. And here they are, now bowing before him, fulfilling that dream that he had because they would never have imagined that he would have become the ruler of all of Egypt. Now, instead of revealing who he is, I'm not sure what motivates him to do this, but he accuses them and says, you guys are spies here. You haven't come. There's 10 of you, you're spies, and you've, you've come to, to suss out the land, to see whatever, to, for nefarious purposes. Look at verse 10. They respond and they say, they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. They denied it vehemently. And they told him, you see where it says we are true men? That didn't mean like we're, we're, we're true men. We're real men. No, no. That meant we're honest men. True as in truthful. We're being truthful with you. Okay. So they're saying, we're, we're, we're perfectly truthful with you. We only came to buy food and we're not spies. Verse 12 then says, And he say, said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said, thy servants are 12. Now, this is interesting because what he does, he actually put them in a position where they have to start flapping their gums, when they have to start telling him, more, giving him more information about why they're not spies. Okay? So he says in verse 12, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land, ye are come. And they said, thy servants are 12 brethren, the son of one in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. So they were trying to prove to him that they weren't spies from another kingdom who were being brought together, but they were trying to prove to him, but we're just a family. We're not part of some conspiracy from a kingdom, from another king somewhere to try and suss out the land. We're just, we're just brothers from, from, one, from one dad. And so Joseph's put them in a position where they're, they're starting to to talk and they start to open up and trying to explain but they're just a family and not an army and not part of an army that's going, that's going to try and invade and they needed to believe him that they were just family guys that they were just brothers looking for food to save their own family 
And they explain, there's 12 brothers. The youngest is with their father and one is not. Who were they talking about? One is not? Him. <laughs> so you can imagine he's, he's taking this all in. At least they hadn't forgotten about him completely. So Joseph thinks to himself, now have a listen to this. Benjamin is his little brother from his mum. Maybe he hasn't seen him for 20 years. And he's thinking to himself, how do I get to see my brother again? So verse 14 comes and he's going to put them to the test. It says in verse 14, And Joseph said unto them, This is that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies, hereby ye shall be proved. I'm going to put you to the test. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go forth hence. You're not going to leave this place except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. And he put them all together in ward for three days. He locks them up for three days, just to give a bit of a taste. Huh? And he's told them, you're going to send one of you back to go and pick up your little brother. But they remembered their dad didn't want them to send Benjamin. But then after, the, but this is a beautiful thing, because on the third day, right? So they're in, they're in jail for three days. And on that third day, Joseph then comes back to them. They've, they've, he's cooked them for long enough, right? In verse 18 then says, And Joseph said unto them on the third day, This do, and, and this is what, what is, should be um, amazing to them. He says, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one, so he's, changed, he's changed the story now. First he said they were all meant to be in prison. Now he's changed it to just one. One hostage he wants, right? If you be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye carry corn for the famine of your houses. So he's, he's sending them back with all the corn they need for their family because he's thought, hey, I, want, I don't want my family to suffer. But bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified and ye shall not die. And they did so. They agreed. So Joseph tells them that he's changed it from all of them staying except for one. Now they can all leave except for one. And he's sending them back with a full load of food. Look at verse 21. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them and said, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child and you would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them. So they're talking amongst themselves for he spake unto them by an interpreter. So they so in front of him, they started to argue amongst each other, all right? And started telling each other off, saying, you know why we're in this pickle? You know what's happening here? It's because of what we did to Joseph. That's why God's doing this to us. We're getting justice for the injustice that we did. And meanwhile, Joseph is listening to this conversation going on. Interesting. But what's beautiful about it is that they recognise their guilt, didn't they? They recognise they had done something wrong and they recognise that 
there was an injustice done, but justice should be served. And they were guilty of that. But they still didn't recognise their brother. That sin that they had committed, their, their hatred for him, their lack of knowing him, was still a veil in front of their eyes. They had agreed, they had believed that they had done a great sin. And they believed that they were in this predicament because of that sin. But they, they were now reaping the justice of their own injustice. So in verse 24, it says, And he turned himself, and this is, breaks my heart here, because he goes, it, he understood what they were saying. They were talking about him. And they were feeling sorry and guilty about what they'd done to their brother 20 years ago. Okay, so imagine they had carried that for 20 years. And in front of, in front of him, they, they, they're telling each other this. And it says, And he turned himself about from them and wept. And returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. And thus did he unto them. And they were laded with ass, their, their asses with the corn and departed thence. So the fact that, that Joseph wept for his brothers showed that he still had a great love for them. He loved his father. He loved his little brother. He wasn't going to see anything bad happen to them. Um, they didn't recognize him, but that would have broken his heart to hear about how they felt about what they had done to him all those years ago. It's nice to know. Isn't it when someone comes and confesses to you if they've hurt you and they come to you and say, sorry, well, I did that. It actually is a, such a blessing. In this particular case, he had to go away to cry in a corner somewhere and didn't go back until he was all dried up. But he has his brothers around him now. And so he chose Simeon to be the captive. And he heads them away. He tells them to, to head off and to do what, he is, what he's asked them to do. Um, but he tells them to fill their sacks with grain so he gives them everything they need and on top of that he gives them the money that they were supposed to pay back in the sack which once again is a beautiful picture of jesus we can't pay for what he's done for us there is no amount of money that's ever going to pay god for the sacrifice that christ has made for us there's nothing i, I can give i can give my whole life i can give everything it will never repay the price that he has paid. And I wonder sometimes about the grief of God. Does God grieve? You wonder? wonder? Does God cry? Well, if, if uh, Joseph is, a, uh, is an image of Christ, then he does. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept at the funeral of Lazarus. When he saw other people grieving, I believe God grieves. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to, to eternal life. I wonder what happens when people reject him. Does he grieve? When I think of Jesus in the garden, and I think of the grief he went through. He was about to be separated from the, from the, the presence of his own father. When he was about to wear the entire sins of the world. When he's about to be stripped of all his, of all his uh, grace and, uh, and, and humiliated, I wonder 
what went through his heart. We know that he sweat drops of blood. But what is a soul worth to the Lord? What's your soul worth to him? Does he grieve over us? I wonder. When he looks at our lives and he sees all the lost opportunities that we may have missed. I don't know. But I sense that Christ has a soft heart. That's the way he revealed himself. And I sense that we underestimate the tenderness of the heart of our own saviour. We can treat him badly sometimes and not think about what he's feeling. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So let me share with you this morning and close this message. There is no one who feels for you, yearns for you, who loves you, and wants fellowship with you more than him. There's no one. No one who wants you more than him. There is no one who loves you more than him. No one who cares about you more than him. No one wants to see you succeed more than him. He paid a high price for you and me. And he didn't pay a high price to let us languish in sin. Why would you keep distant from him? Why would you stay away from him? Why would we go chasing the things of this world? instead of him. If you have Christ, you have that which is the most perfect and precious and pure. Don't replace him with things that are worthless. If you're not saved this morning, if you don't know Christ, if you've never come to recognise him, if you've never heard his call, calling your name, telling that he wants to come into your life and save you, and now is the perfect time to open that door because he's calling you now. He's calling you to be saved. Don't waste another moment of your life. Turn to God and live. God bless you. Thank you. Brother Gaynor.